Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we've entered into this really fun stage of parenting where my 13-year-old daughter will come and show me something that's really like cool and edgy and brand new. And like most of the time, I just let her know that there's nothing new about it. That was really cool in the 90s. Or that was cool when I was a kid. And every time she's like, no, uh I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it totally is. And I remember the first time she came back with some like baggy jeans and she's like, yeah, dude, skinny jeans are out, dad. I'm like, I invented baggy jeans. And she's like, no, you didn't. I'm like, Google Jinko jeans. Like, <laughs> Look it up. And then she like starts playing the song on the guitar and I'm like, do you know who that is? And she's like, yeah, it's a band called Nirvana. And I'm like, do you even know who Nirvana is? She's like, no. And I'm like, yeah, you're not, you're not like as cutting edge as you want to think. Or she just comes with, she starts playing like a, like an Oasis song. And I'm like, I'm like, you, I'm like, you don't, you don't understand. Like you think this is all new, like wearing overalls or something. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like all of this stuff as just coming around. And uh, if you remember, if you were a child of the 90s, uh, like myself, we used to play, like the biggest fad in elementary school was Pogs. You guys remember Pogs? Uh, if you're like watching this and you're 18, maybe not, but you would like get these, these things that would stack up and you get slammers. I had this like red, like yin-yang slammer, like hit it and you flip it over and you'd be like, it's kind of like, you know, like soft gambling in elementary school going on. Um, and I remember someone being like, do you even know what those are? I'm like, yeah, they're pogs. Like, no, those are, those are milk caps that they turned into a game. And, and it's funny how there is this perception of these things that feel new, but actually they're old. And in the Gospel of Mark, what you find is Jesus showing up and really infuriating kind of the leading experts of the day on religion and morality and spirituality. And he presents what they think are new ideas, but what they don't really understand is that their ideas that they have kind of calcified upon, kind of their legalism and their structures, Jesus comes to reveal the original intent kind of draws them back. You think, you think it's like this, right? You think that's a pog. It's actually a milk cap. You think that like that's a new thing of fashion, but actually that's, this is the original thing where it came from. And, and Jesus is doing this all the time. And in the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see this sequential five stories. And we're going to be focusing on three of them where the people who are supposed to be the experts look look like they don't know what they're talking about and they're frustrated and frustrated is kind of an understatement by the fifth story they want to kill him this is how upset they are of how jesus is interpreting and reinterpreting the things of life and so i wanted to kind of dive into three of these stories this is starting in mark 2 verse 13 but just a quick quick little bit of a background of some of the the tension that's going on here is if you remember, Mark is writing to a primarily non-Jewish church in the city of Rome, undergoing immense persecution under uh, Caesar Nero. But 
uh, although it's primarily Gentile, there, uh, the reason why it became a primarily Gentile church is in AD 49, the Jews were kicked out of Rome. Before the Christians were persecuted, the Jews were. But in about AD 53, they came back, they were welcomed back, and so all of a sudden you had this kind of new growing church that was primarily non-Jewish, and then these Jews come in, who are also followers of Jesus, and there begins to kind of be this debate. And essentially goes something like this, how Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus, who himself was Jewish? And this is a, largely the theological debate that's going on around the New Testament. Uh, whether you're Gentile, which means non-Jew, whether you're Jewish, how much of these traditions, these laws from Moses do you have to follow in order to be a true follower of Jesus? And that, and that debate is kind of raging on. And so in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he, he really tackles this issue that Jesus is the interpretive lens for how we should view some of these laws that are hundreds of years old Uh, 613 of them to be exact, given to them by Moses, called the Mosaic Law. And Jesus now kind of wrestling through the relationship to these laws. So we're going to dive into this in just three, three stories. One is about a new kind of table. Secondly is a new kind of wine. And thirdly is a new kind of rest. So the first one is a, a new kind of table. Mark 2.13 says this, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in order to understand all that's going on in this story, there's there's two characters that have incredible historical significance here for the story really to come to life. One is this group called the Pharisees. Now, quick backstory: Israel's history is filled with these ups and downs based on their faithfulness to God's covenant. And when they're faithful, there's blessing in the land. And when they walk away from faithfulness to Yahweh, they experience exile out of the land. And in one of the most dramatic stories in their exile to Babylon, as they returned, there was this guy named Ezra who called the people back to faithfulness to Torah, faithfulness to the covenant. And Ezra, many believe, was the, the person who began this movement that later on was called the Pharisees. And so the, the idea, the origin of the Pharisees was beautiful. It was, listen, if we don't stay true to the covenant, then we're going to continue to be in exile. We're going to continue to live outside of the blessing of God. And so this, this group of Pharisees, not that big, but incredibly influential, felt it was their job to keep the Jewish people, to call the Jewish people back to faithfulness. Now, one of the ways they did this is that in order to not break the 613 laws, they created laws as like buffers, kind of like bumpers when you're bowling, you know, to make sure you don't get off the rails, called the Mishnah and the Talmud. They're like commentaries on it. And so they created laws outside of the Mosaic Law. And these were called 
the traditions of the elders. This is really important. It's going to come up later on. So these traditions were started to be held to as tightly and as high-valued as the Mosaic Law. So if you were breaking the traditions, kind of the how you interpreted the law, the laws around the laws, you would be socially ostracized. So there's this group, right, kind of the, the holy police of the day. There's another group that couldn't be more opposite called the tax collectors. Uh, the tax collectors were those who did the exact opposite. They saw no hope in ever God ever redeeming the people, and so they kind of joined forces with Rome. And because of the deliberate decision to work against the Jewish people and to come under allegiance of Rome, is that they became kind of the worst of the worst. I mean, kind of like like the moles under like Nazi Germany that would tell people where the Jews were. I mean, they was just disgusting in the eyes of the ancient Jews what these people would do. On top of that, the only way they made money is if they would give a surcharge on top of Rome's taxes. So they were getting wealthy off the backs of the people who were already being overly taxed. Some people think upwards of 80 or 90% of their income. And so you can imagine the animosity raging towards these tax collectors. Um, I mean, some, some of the laws around their relationship to tax collectors says Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors. So meaning even poor people begging would not take almsgiving from tax collectors. Um, that by being in the same room as a tax collector would make you ceremonially un clean and even in the different subgroups of Judaism everyone agreed they're the worst so here's these these two groups right Jesus comes up and he sees Levi who later we find out is given the name or has the name Matthew who has written the other gospel just preceding Mark and he calls them to this and remember if you were shocked about Peter and and Andrew and John and James being called you would have been it would have been scandalous that Matthew, Levi, would have been called. And then, it's not even that he just calls and follows him. He's like, he goes to his house, and then Matthew invites the only friends he has, which are other tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is there with his disciples, and it says that he's reclining at the table, which would have been the seat of the host. So Jesus, even though he's at Matthew's house, is hosting a party for tax collectors and sinners. And this other religious morally upright sect that sees all of this immorality as the reason for their oppression under Rome can't believe what's happening. And, and so they go and they challenge Jesus and they're like, and his disciples, what is he doing? Why is this happening? And Jesus' response is brilliant. He says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if you remember the chapter before, we see an emphasis on this word repentance. Strangely enough, this word doesn't show up at this party. There's no call for Matthew to repent, these sinners to repent. You would, you're kind of waiting for it as a listener. He's just there with them, showing mercy. This is why I came. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. And this, one thing I love is if you look at Matthew and Luke's gospel record this story too, but Matthew, who this actually happened to, 
records one extra detail. There's one extra line that it seems that Matthew recalls, and it's this line in Matthew 9, 13. It says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And I love that Matthew's the only one who remembers or the Holy Spirit brings to his remembrance this one line, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so out the gate, Jesus takes the kind of the tradition of the elders and flips it on his head by simply doing what's called table fellowship. The people he would associate with and extend mercy to. He gives a picture of a new kind of table. You don't sit with people that you're like, you agree with, you have the same standards as you see God and culture and life and politics the same. You sit with people who couldn't be more on the opposite end of the spectrum as you, and that's the kind of parties you host. I mean, if you're feeling uncomfortable, that's, I think that's the point. It, it should challenge every single one of us towards our natural tendencies, just to move towards people who we like. They're like us. They think like us. They value the things we value. They hate the things that we hate. And Jesus just does something that people have no context, no concept for what to do with that in their mind. The next story talks about something that, again, frustrates these religious rulers, these Pharisees. In verse 18, it says, Now Jesus' disciples... And the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as long as they have them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into the new wineskin. Now, there's a lot happening here, but after this party, sometime later, they notice that John the baptizer's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. Jesus' disciples don't. Now, in the law... There is only one time a year as a Jew you're required to fast, and that's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You have to fast 24 hours. But again, this isn't really about the law. This is about the tradition of the elders. And the tradition says that you fast twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, sun up to sundown. And that was, again, an added practice for those people. And so they asked Jesus' disciples, why aren't you doing what all the prominent religious leaders of the day are doing? And Jesus does something shocking. He calls himself the bridegroom, which there's no messianic prophecy in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah being a bridegroom. The only time it talks about there being a bridegroom in the Old Testament is, is in reference to God. Again, this is a subtle nod that Jesus is having to his divinity. I'm the bridegroom. He says, you don't fast when the bridegroom's in town. It doesn't matter if it's Tuesday or Thursday. And this, this practice would have been wildly accepted even from the rabbis. That you, on a wedding feast, by the way, Jews had their wedding feast last seven days. It's a seven-day party. He says, you don't fast on those times. And he says, I'm the bridegroom. And then he, which would have been, again, had, it's a loaded term that we kind of gloss over, but for the Pharisees, an expert in the law, they're like, you're calling yourself the bridegroom? And then he says something, says, listen, 
is you cannot put, uh, uh, and he gives kind of these two crisp, short um, parables. He's like, you can't put a new piece of clothing on an old piece of clothing and then wash it because that new piece will actually tear away, it'll pull away at the hole that's already there and it'll make the tear worse. And then he goes and starts talking about wines. Like you would never put new wine into an old wineskin because as it ferments and as it grows, it'll burst that wineskin. It says that this new wineskin has to put in new wine. Uh, and this new wine has to be put into new wineskin. This new piece of cloth has to be attached to a new piece of fabric. And what he's calling himself, he says, listen, I'm this new piece of cloth. I'm this new wine. And you're trying to make me fit into the old mechanism, your old traditions, but you can't do that. What I'm bringing is new. And it's not new in the sense it's never been done before. It's new in the sense kind of like the 90s fashion, the pogs. It's just this thing of like, this is what it was always meant to be. And for you, it's new. But don't try and make this new thing fit into what is old. And this, this, this angers them. This angers the Pharisees. And you kind of see kind of the temperature rising, which leads to kind of the third story. Verse 23 says this, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of... Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And at this point, they just kind of, it just boiled over. Like, what, what do you mean you're the Lord of the Sabbath? Like, this is from you. Now, Let's backtrack a little bit. Why, why is Sabbath keeping so frustrating for these Pharisees? Well, again, remember, the Israelite people are a nomadic people. And even their time in the land, in the promised land, is short-lived because of their unfaithfulness. So they're exiled. And so what do you do as a people, an ethnic group, to maintain your identity when you don't have a land? You don't have landmarks. You don't have a geographical location. Well, for the Jews... They marked themselves by two ways. One would be circumcision for the males, but the second one, the more prominent one even, was their relationship to time. Specifically, they Sabbathed. It's what made them Jewish. So if you didn't Sabbath, and you're in Babylon, you're in Persia, you're in, under Rome, you, there is no temple at some of these times. But what makes you Jewish? Well, it's your Sabbath keeping. And so again, for the, the Pharisees, they're... They're adamant. Like, you can't break these laws. This is, you're doing it. So they made these 39 laws on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Some of them would have been, would have made sense in the Jewish mindset. But some of them, like, you can't untie a knot. One of them said in, in the Mishnah that you can't, you can't tie one, you can't tie a thread more than one time through. If there was, like, rubble that fell on someone, you could only take enough rubble for them to get out. There's certain things that like, you essentially couldn't start something that would carry in the Sabbath and you couldn't start something that would not take more than one kind of activity. You couldn't walk certain lengths. And so here comes Jesus and his disciples and they're walking through the grain field and they're, and they're plucking heads of grain to eat, which would have been classified in their mind as like, you're, you're reaping, you're harvesting. 
And at this point, they're like, who do you think you are? And Jesus does something. He actually points to another point in Scripture when David did the same thing, which again is a subtle way of pointing himself as like, hey, I, if David did that, I'm the new David. And if you know anything about these messianic prophecies, you know that one of the things they're looking for is this descendant of David. And he says, listen, I'm doing what David did. I'm his descendant. I'm the Messiah. And so all this is going on. I mean, I, I love it. Jesus is just frustrating them because he presents a new kind of table. He points to himself, says, I'm a new kind of wine. He points to the Sabbath and he says, listen, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. You don't serve the Sabbath. It's not just some rigid rule to keep you from doing things. He says, the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift. It's to remind you you were made to rest. And if you take this gift to make you rest and it burdens you down with legalism, then you completely miss the point. And what is Jesus doing? He's pointing back towards God's original intent about rest, about fasting, about table fellowship. He says, you've become so burdened down with your traditions that you've missed the heart of the law that was given in the first place. It's brilliant what Jesus is doing here. Which kind of makes me start asking some questions as a pastor. Because chances are you're not caught up in religious debates about your fasting routines or if like how how strict you are on your Sabbath keeping and, or, or maybe even who you're hanging out with. Maybe that one, maybe a little bit. So I just began to kind of ask some questions pastorally. This is kind of taking a step away from Bible teaching. These are just kind of some pastoral notes I have. What would be some of our tradition of the elders? What would be some things that for us is kind of within Western Christianity that we, for us, have become really, really important distinctives that may or may not be biblical. So I just wrote down four things, just some things to ponder, and I'm sure there's more. You could come up with your own list, but it's just four things. Number one, it seems that we've created this legalistic tradition around selective morality, meaning certain things that we think are immoral are really important, And other things that are immoral, we just kind of like push down here. And we've kind of made this hierarchical list of like, well, that sin's the worst. And that sin's, no, 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 it's not that bad. And and that sin's like, yeah, we don't even talk about that. For, For instance, we could talk about, we could talk about sins uh, that deal with greed or pride. And to be honest, the, we probably just don't worry about that. You probably don't just wake up sweating, just being thinking about, are you being greedy? But it's a, it's a biblical sin. So what do we do? We have selective morality. We look at some of the people walking to our church struggling with other issues, and you're, and you're like, well, you better clean that up. But what we do is we've kind of picked and chosen some sort of like traditional hierarchy that even if they, we can classify something as sin, we've created a structure that the Bible never gives us to make. Second sort of what I would call kind of a tradition of the elders is political idolatry. Like it's, it's if I can just be honest with you, sometimes it's, it's heartbreaking for me sitting with pastors hearing how community, covenant communities around the blood of Jesus have been strained and some of them torn apart 
because of political ideology that move from a political ideology to a political idolatry when something becomes more important than Christ. That, that's something we need to really evaluate. It doesn't mean these aren't important conversations. It just means that if our allegiance is to Jesus and fill in the blank, we have it wrong. Third thing that I think might be kind of under that chasm or the umbrella of tradition of the elders is, is just visible hypocrisy. Like there's, unfortunately, from the outside looking in, a lot of the conversations I have with people, like I just see hypocrisy. I see people preaching something that they're not living out. Fourthly is this stylistic subjectivity, meaning like, well, this is how we worship. These are the songs we play, or this is the structure of our service, or, you know, we lean into this sort of like enthusiastic expression, or we do liturgy here. And all of a sudden these things that like, they're not good or bad. They just become so important that they become the most important thing about them. And so I would just begin to say if, if those are just four of those things, selective morality, political idolatry, visible hypocrisy, and stylistic subjectivity, these are just some of our Western church um, traditions that have become wrapped up in our identity. What would be something that Jesus would want to say to us, some, some loving correction Jesus might want to say to these things. So here's, here's what I would, again, my, this is my humble, prayerful uh, submission to you. That instead of selective morality, that Jesus would call us towards radical mercy to the other. Who's, who's your tax collector? Who's that sub person, in, that subculture, that type of person, that personality type that you just, man, you have a hard time extending grace and mercy. I, I just think that God's calling us as a, as a community towards radical mercy towards the other. The second thing I think the Lord would want to kind of realign is a, a realigned identity to Jesus. So instead of having kind of political or social kind of idolatry, that he would call us saying, listen, your allegiance must first and foremost, your identity cannot come from your political party. Your identity has to come from me. The thirdly, third thing is this idea of ruthless integrity in all things. So in the face of visible hypocrisy of um, some very prominent leaders of the faith being under scrutiny for things that they've done that were really horrific that there would be a call by Jesus back to ruthless integrity in all things character matters and the fourth thing I just wrote down and again just kind of praying through this is that we just have redeemed priorities to the kingdom meaning let's keep the main things the main things and the main things as defined by the kingdom of heaven. So if it matters in the kingdom of heaven, it needs to matter to our churches and our communities. If it matters to Jesus, it's a priority to Jesus and it's a priority to us. If it's a preference, a stylistic thing, then that's fine. But let it be just that, a preference. And so just as a reminder, I be, what I believe that Jesus might be wanting to say to us 2,000 years later these things that might shock us and just even maybe rub us the wrong way, would be that 
we, and maybe I was talking about it, I need to have radical mercy towards the people that are hard for me to love. I need to have realigned identity to Jesus alone. I need to have ruthless integrity in all things. I need to have redeemed priorities to the kingdom of God. I don't know if uh, you know what today is, but today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost is a significant day for the church because it's the church's birthday. 2,000 years ago, the church was born on this day. It's called Pentecost. It's also called Shabbat in, in the Hebrew tradition. The same day. And so I wanted to point out a few things uh, that I think are significant, even in lieu of what we've just talked about, or sorry, in light of what we've just talked about. It's important for us to recognize about this day of Pentecost. Uh, there should be a, a graph that comes on your screen that looks at these two events because the original Pentecost, the original Shavat, happened after the Exodus, after Moses delivered the people of Israel. They're on Mount Sinai and God then gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law on these tablets. And that's the first Shavat, the first Pentecost. And then hundreds and hundreds of years later, um, there is what, not on Mount Sinai, but on Mount Zion, we have the next Pentecost. So here's, here's some parallels. On Mount Sinai, it took place 50 days after the Passover lambs were slain. On Mount Zion, it took place 50 days after the Passover lamb was slain. The Exodus at Mount Sinai marked the birth of the Israelite nation. The Pentecost on Mount Zion marked the birth of the church. Mount Sinai, the fire of God's Spirit rested on a singular place. But Pentecost on Mount Zion, the fire of God's Spirit rested on individual people. On Mount Sinai, the Israelites left Egypt on Passover and 40 days later arrived at Sinai. Then Moses went up to the mountain to see God. Ten days later, Moses came down with the Torah. Jesus died on Passover and 40 days later went up to the mount to see God, Mount of Olives. He ascends. Ten days after he ascends, the Holy Spirit came down. And lastly, um, on Mount Sinai, celebrated the giving of the covenant law written on tablets, right? The Ten Commandments given on these tablets. But on Mount Zion, at the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, celebrates the giving of the new covenant of a law written on our hearts. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah 31. It says, someday the law will not be written on tablets of stone, but it'll be written in your heart. And I think what an amazing day as we study about Jesus calling his people back to the original intent of the heart of God, that today's the day of Pentecost. We don't know, we no longer follow a law written on tablets and stone. We follow a law that is ultimately written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit, following the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures. And it just makes me just want to just say and echo the prayer that the church has prayed for hundreds of years. Come Holy Spirit, do it again. Move us away from the traditions of our own elders in our own context. And would you begin to reignite and re- um, just, re, uh, just breathe life into our hearts again. That Holy Spirit, that you would come and do that. And so just in conclusion, just a, just a couple of thoughts. If you're new or you're curious about Jesus, just a couple takeaways I hope you have. Is number one, that he has room at the table for you. The table where he's the host. Secondly, 
that he has a feast he's preparing for you, right? He's the bridegroom, and he is the wine that we will feast on. Thirdly, that he has rest ready to offer you because he takes the burden. My hope is that if you think that, like, I identify with the tax collector and the sinner, that you'd recognize there's room at the table, there's new wine that Jesus is bringing, and that ultimately that we are invited into his rest, his Sabbath rest that he gives us. And for those of you who follow Jesus, just three things to consider based on these three stories. And I pray you hear this. They, we would hear those words from Matthew. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Where can Jesus move you towards mercy this week? Thirdly, he desires deeper longing and joyful anticipation. Remember, this is not just about fasting. It's really about feasting. That yes, we fast. We fast. It should be a rhythm of our life. And that when we go without food, it reminds us of the, the true food we're longing for. But also, it creates joyful anticipation that there is a wedding feast being prepared for a bridegroom. And the last thing I would just encourage us with is that He desires life-giving rest, not law-abiding religiosity. And so, if you just need to just rest today in Jesus to just take that yoke of legalism off your shoulders and to ask, Lord, what if, if there's a law that's a good law, would you be able to approach it through the lens of Jesus and say, God, what is your heart behind that? How do I live into what you're calling me to? When you tell me not to do something, let me see the beautiful good thing of why. If you're calling me to do something, would I be able to step into it with joy? And I just hope and pray that this week that you would just see this as an opportunity to just have your own kind of religious world, whatever that is, just shooken up by the love of Jesus. And we'd be people who are just shocked once again by the question, who is Jesus? Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much. You make room at your table for the worst of society and you call them friends and followers. Would we do the same? Because that's how you've treated us. Lord, I pray that we would not get hung up on kind of these legalistic structures and rhythms. But Lord, we'd understand that, Lord, oh, you are the bridegroom. You didn't just call us to fast. You called us to feast on you. And Lord, I pray that we would take this, the new wine of your covenant of what you've come to do. Oh God, we're not trying to fit it into our small mechanisms and presuppositions. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for rest. I just have a sense that this has been an exhausting couple of years. And Lord, we need to rediscover what it means to rest in you. And so Lord, we just invite you to come do your work in us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.